Hello and welcome to the Headstuff Podcast. I'm here with Dave Henratty. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. This is the John Connolly episode. It is. Um, Connor is not here. He's not. So, sorry, dear Where listener. is he? Uh, he? When he heard that you were going to be here... Okay, fair he, enough. He... He just couldn't contain his excitement. I just wish <laughs> he went uh, to bed early. I just wish he'd be a bit more mature about this whole situation. <laughs> but you know, fine, fair enough. If you want to bring it to the podcast? We'll bring it to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We won't. That's bring it. No. It to the okay. <laughs> we're good. I, I, I think we're actually good. Yeah, yeah. No, Connor just couldn't make it today. Yeah. Uh, he would very much have liked to be in here. Um, would have liked to be here. Uh, so we've talked to John Connolly. We did. He's great. He is. He is great. Uh, he's written a lot of books. He's written a lot of books. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, shame on you. First of all, uh, he's <laughs> one of our finest authors. Uh, he's from Dublin. He's a great writer. He used to write for the Irish Times back in the day. Then he became a novelist, and it took off from there. Uh, his, I guess, he's most well known for his Charlie Parker series, which is a series about a private detective, which deals in the supernatural. And there's 14 of those books now. The 14th book is about to come out. The, the 14th book is launching in the Gutter Bookshop. On Tuesday, the 29th of March, at half six. Correct. And the book is called A Time of Torment. It is. Which follows A Song of Shadows. It does. And I, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, like maybe George R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones might be starting to look at John Connolly pretty soon with some of those titles. Like, <laughs> they're pretty good. Um, but yes, uh, I've read all the books in the series. Uh, I've read all of John Connolly's books. Can you believe that? Every single book. I've read every single Have book. Have you read the ones that he co-wrote with somebody else? Okay, I haven't read those ones. Okay. Uh, you just fucking exposed me. <laughs> <laughs> have you read the book of short stories? Let's stop. No, yeah, I have you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I have nocturnes. Yeah, nocturnes. and there's a second one. Can you um, name all his books in order? In the Charlie Parker series. Yeah. Jesus Christ! I'll try. Okay. Okay. Every dead thing. Oh, yeah, are you gonna like bring up the yep. the list? Yes, I am. Okay. Let, let, okay. Yeah. Okay. This gives me about an extra ten seconds to think. Okay, I have the list. So okay, uh, every dead thing, Dark Hollow, the Killing Kind, the White Road, the Black Angel. Okay, and now I'm stuck. Uh, You're right so far. I am right so far. Oh God, uh, fuck! Uh, this is really, this is really frustrating. That's that's five, isn't it? Yeah. Of fourteen, <laughs> so nine to go. Give me a clue. Um, it's not quiet. The unquiet, which <laughs> is like one of the better ones, one of the best ones. Uh, okay, I'm now gonna completely lose the run of this, now, <laughs> which is a terrible shame because I was very very confident. Yeah. Uh, there's the <laughs> whispers. Okay, that's not yet, but there's two books before that. The Reapers is the spin-off. So that, that one, that one. Okay, well, The Reapers is what they have here. That shouldn't count. That's more of a spin-off. Okay. Uh, so there's something with that kind of title, like the same... Oh, 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 The Lovers. The Lovers, correct. Yeah. Yes, the and lovers, then The Whispers. The Whispers. The Burning Soul. Yep. The Wrath of Angels. Yeah. The Wolf in Winter. Uh-huh. A Song of Shadows. Yeah. And A Time of Torment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very see, impressed. I'm very see impressed. John, <laughs> I'm a real fan. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very good. He's also written some standalones. He wrote a book called Bad Men, uh, which primarily focuses on the antagonist, hence the title. Mm-hmm. Um, the Book of Lost Things, which we talk a lot about on this podcast, which is an excellent book. And I honestly recommend anybody, if you're ever going to read only one John Connolly book, I'd read The Book of Lost Things. I think mm-hmm. it's a beautiful piece of work. It's the first one that I'm reading and I'm really enjoying it. Good. Yeah. yeah. I will. I mean, because it is kind of daunting when you see somebody has, like, you know, 20 odd books as you said to him you, you put that right in his grill I did right he, in there he ran out of the studio <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of the studio this is my first visit to the new Headstuff studio and it's very nice this is yeah this is the Headstuff Podcast Network it's really nice studio and I like uh, it. all of our podcasts will be recorded here it's very good I, really, yeah. I, I quite except like for it. the ones that are done remotely of course yeah of course but uh, back to John um, an absolute gent yes uh, I've like uh, I used to work with um, a friend of mine back in Extra Vision back in the day he got me into he gave me the first book I read it I really liked it 
Uh, and I kept on from there. I've been to several of his launches. I've interviewed him a few times. I've interviewed him for like hot press. I've interviewed him for head stuff. I've interviewed him when I was in college. Uh, an absolute gentleman who will give you his time and more importantly his opinions. Like uh, like he's you know, just a very cool, candid guy. Like he's mm. got no airs or graces about him. Yep. Um, There's no bullshit with him whatsoever. No, totally kind of respects the world that he's in and the position he has. And you know, like he's just always a pleasure to chat to. Like I mean, uh, on this podcast we kind of. We cover quite a lot, and it was just interesting to kind of hear him. Just you know, like it, it's like he's not so much someone who like a, a, a teller of stories. Like he's just mm. kind of a fucking dude. Like he's just a cool guy. Um, mm. See ya. <laughs> 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 That's me done. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I thought it was interesting. I, I think, for, especially for yourself, who's kind of your newcomer to him mm. as well. So, yeah. what did you think of John Connolly? I thought he was great. He's, he's a sound man. Uh, very, very honest. Very forthright and. I never ever thought he was like, you know, making something up or even though he says like the John Connolly tour is kind of in character as, as, as such, e- either he's very good at that or he's very bad at it and it's yeah. just him. Um, but yeah, no, great guy to talk to. Very nice, very generous with his time. Um, we've got a long, long interview with him here for our listeners. Yeah, and please uh, don't turn off in the first five minutes where we talk about curtains. Oh yeah, there is a little bit of talk of uh, soft furnishings. Yeah, and um, it's ah, it's not five minutes; it's one or two minutes. It's I hope one it's minute not. maybe. It felt like five minutes. Nah, nah. <laughs> it's interesting though because John Connolly has curtains. You'll hear the rest in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, there's some curtains in the studio, and they're of a particularly interesting color. So there, which John uh, very nicely describes. It's all he could talk about. Yeah, but we've edited that down to two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, uh, read the books and listen to the man. He's he's an interesting guy. Yeah, so much more interesting than us. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, on that note, uh, this is uh, the John Connolly episode of the Headstuff Podcast. John Connolly, welcome to the Headstuff Podcast. It's lovely. What what a lavish place you have here. This is yeah. this is quite nice. I like the curtains. Yes, the curtains. Yeah, yes. can I, I don't. So nobody can see it because it's a podcast. But curtains, it. curtains are very much like something your nan would have owned in about well, like yeah. nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> but she, she was a bit of a hippie at one point, you know. She's a bit of patchouli oil, smoked a bit of pot, and now things have kind of gone downhill for her, you know. So yeah. all she has left is the cushions, the curtains, and some memories of being, <laughs> you know, in bed with some of the roadies from Tonto's Exploding Headband or something, you know. It's uh, Yes. And she anyway. doesn't even have the curtains anymore. She doesn't, because you have them We here. stole them. Yeah. yeah. How would you describe that colour of that curtain? Vomitous would be the <laughs> word that I would use. I think it's the only word that springs to mind. It's it's a it's an uneasy shade of orangey red. Yeah, it's a str- it is a strange colour that I can't really describe. We're also here with Dave Henratty. I'm mystified by this conversation. How's it going? Good, good. I um, thought you were going to be talking about culture and its decor conversation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how accurate was the description of your grandmother? Apparently, that John has just. Um, not Did she know any groupies from Tontos? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got the we got those ones from uh, my friend's mother, and I reckon they were they were locked up for many years. And these ones, as you can see, there's paint on them. My mother, I took them from. She had been using them to cover furniture when she was painting. So oh, they're yeah. both very old. Um, they are, but they're great. Good heavy curtains. This they is don't quite make the curtains start. like that anymore. And for that, we can only be thankful. Do you have curtains in your house? Yeah, this is conversation getting quite an odd turn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this isn't some weird kind of fetish podcast, is it? You know? It is. It is. It's it's soft furnishings podcast. Um, yeah. yeah, it's funny. I've got I've reached that middle age where things like soft furnishings are actually quite appealing now. Yeah, you know, and you you feel the urge to test chairs. And just, yeah, you know. How's that chair? Do you like the chair? This chair is quite nice, and I, yeah. yeah, because I have reached that age where I I. I sigh when I get up and I sigh when uh, I yeah. sit down again and right. and eventually there will just be one final sign I'll stop moving. So um, <laughs> so chairs and comfort have become very, very important to me. So I've become quite interested in 
in the, the detail of furniture. Yeah, well, my mother my doesn't really have really curtains tall. anymore. I'm going to keep going at this for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's now yeah. it's all blinds, Venetian blinds yeah. with like, um, what are they called? Like netting in front of it. Okay. The sound you hear in the background is like something like thousands of people just switching, switching off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've reached the age where I'm really excited when I get a new pair of glasses because I'm excited about the case. Have you, have you, man? You, you've had no. a milestone recently. I have these great glasses, but um, I I have had them for about 10 years, I think. Wow. Yeah. Because they do this. Again, this is the yeah. not a visual medium. No, but the, the, the arms bend the wrong see, way. See, I find those quite annoying. Do you? I think glasses are just, I get really annoyed with Colm Tobin when I see him on television because he has those ridiculous red glasses that separate in the middle. Okay. And I kind of think, how big is your head? Frankly, <laughs> that you can't just take your glasses <laughs> off. Um, so I just think glasses should be should just simply be glasses. And I, I don't thankfully I don't wear glasses yet, mm. so I haven't. I haven't reached, I'm sure I will over the next year or so, but I remember reading an interview with Jurgen Klopp, the, the Liverpool manager, who had yeah. his glasses broken at a Norwich game. In oh, a, yes. In a, in a moment of, of, of ebullience among his players. Yeah, yeah. And he pointed out, and it was quite well, lovely, he pointed out it's very hard to shop for glasses when you don't have any glasses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a good point. You think, yeah, and I thought, well, there you go. The chairman yeah. is very logical. Yes. Logical people. Yeah, if I was going to shop for glasses, I'd put in my contact lenses. Oh, there you go. I've done it before. There you go. Before. That's again, I hear more clicking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, feel, I, feel, I, feel, I feel like we should move on. Yeah, but it's the new audience we're going to get. That's what I'm interested in. I don't in. want that audience. <laughs> Nobody no, wants that audience. I don't want those either because they're too short sighted to read anything. So. Uh, actually, I would like to ask a question of you, of you John. Um, uh, basically, recently I was reviewing the new Sun Kill Moon and Yezu collaboration album. Sun yes. Kill Moon, of course, is Mark Kozlek, who's a very notoriously prickly character, but he's one of your audience. He's a fan because he name checks you twice on that record. He does. Which led me to kind of reach out to you via email and be like, what's what's all this about? No, I've, I've known Mark a little bit because I'm actually very fond of him. Um, when I did the first of the CDs that went with the books, because we do these these CD compilations that, that sit alongside the books, um, I licensed Summer Dress, which was a, a Red House Painters record, a Red House Painters song. And um, of course, when when you're doing these things, you have to write to the people involved. And I, I write a very careful letter to each person. I don't do just a stock letter. I will explain why I want to use this song. And um, I think he was. I'm trying to think. He was. He was probably still four AD or whoever four AD were at that point. Was still dealing with things, and we didn't have any trouble licensing the song. And he was performing in Whelan's, and I went along with a copy of the book. And just because it was the Black Angel, about the fifth or sixth book, and I gave it to him just to so, look, you won't remember, but you licensed this track, and I was very grateful that you didn't kick up a fuss, and it was all easy, and I gave him the book, and nothing more was said because he was off in a corner chatting with, with the other member of the band who was there. And then sometime after, he got a very lovely letter uh, thanking me for the book, thanking me for coming along, uh, saying how much he'd enjoyed it. And we've kind of corresponded since then, and um, and so he's, I think he likes particularly, the he, he was very fond of the Book of Lost Things. And then some years back, um, it's about two years ago, he'd read an early copy of A Song of Shadows. And there was a chapter in that that he liked and asked if he could set it to music. And so he set, I think, chapter eight of A Song of Shadows to music. And that's on the new compilation CD. Um, so, and it's interesting you say he's a prickly character. I think he's, I think he's adopted, in the way that we all do, he has adopted a persona. Um, and he has created what I think is very interesting form of, of musical exploration in that he is using his he's using his life as the subject matter for his for his songs and they've become increasing like I think tone poems but it's very easy when you do that to become kind of solipsistic and so that everything you write becomes about yourself it was great it's why I always preferred uh, Paul McCartney to John Lennon uh, so many of Lennon's songs involve the word I 
and, and essentially are dealing with John Lennon and how the world doesn't understand him. A lot of it's the difference between a song, say, if you take the greatest A side, double A side in history, which is Petty Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever. Strawberry Fields Forever is all I. Uh, Penny Lane is filled with characters. And I think um, McCartney was capable of writing about himself, but also not cutting out other people and, and, and using his own experiences. Empathy, I suppose you could call it, and compassion. And there's a beautiful song on that Sunken Moon Yesu compilation. It's called, um, oh God, it's the f second last song on the album. And it's about. Um, Bereaved parents. It's either Father's Day or Exodus. I can't Exodus. Yeah. It's Exodus. It's about eleven minutes long. Yeah, yeah. And it is. It's one of the most extraordinarily moving things. Yeah, I've it's ever incredible. Heard. Yeah. And especially if you if you're a pair if you're a parent, it's an amazing thing to hear. This it's an extraordinary reaching out by somebody who doesn't have any kids of his own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, takes a starting point. Him arriving at, at Heathrow Airport and hearing that Nick Cave's son has died, and remembering that he'd met Nick Cave and his son at a hotel, just completely coincidentally. And then following this thread of thought through people that he's known who've lost parents and his own girlfriend who died and her parents. And then it's just this beautiful, amazingly moving course. That's a very difficult thing to do, to start from what is essentially you, you know, him arriving tired of Heathrow Airport again and suddenly creating something which is incredibly universal. And um, so I think he's, um, you know, I, I think he, I think... I was talking to some university students this week about radio, curiously, and, and we were talking about podcasting because a lot of them said, I don't listen to radio, but they do listen to podcasts. So they, and I said, well, actually, podcasting is actually, it's, it's broadcasting. It is, it is radio by any other name. Um, and I was trying to explain to them that all, even on radio, people create a persona. Uh, if you think back to, I was playing them a bit of John Peel, vintage John Peel. And it's very interesting to listen to John Peel when he was John Ravenscroft, because he sounded like he had this cut glass English accent. He sounded like he was going to he was going to start cutting down the rebels or in the Indian Mutiny. Um, and by the end of his life, he has the most deadpan Scouse accent that anyone has ever heard. And John Peel didn't really exist, or John Peel was a was a kind of creation of John John Ravenscroft that eventually took over and became the persona that he had on the radio. And so I think we have to be very careful when, you, when you're talking about a musician or um, or an actor uh, or a writer even, um, to kind of, we kind of assume that they always put themselves out there, that what you see is, is actually what they are. And I think people are much more complex and layered than that. And I think, I think Mark's art at the moment is a kind of exploration of that. That isn't to say that he's not capable of you know, getting people's back up by doing it, you know. Um, but I think he's very, he's quite aware of, of what he's doing, I think. And I, I find that a kind of, I find that exploration interesting. That's a very long answer to a very yeah. short question. <laughs> <laughs> um, how much of what you just said, though, about kind of adopting a persona, because you mentioned writers there, how much that applies to John Connolly? Oh, um, there's a certain amount of it. I, I, I mean, they are... There's a separation between, I guess, the books and me, and then there's a separation between me and the person who has to go out and publicise the books. Um, you know, I um, when I'm at home, um, I tend to be very solitary and very quiet. Um, and my other half and my kids would say that, you know, he doesn't want to go out much and he doesn't really want to talk to people. And um, And especially when you're immersed in a book, you are... You're not really very good at, at going out and talking to people. You know, I, I get very involved in what I do uh, and they take a long time to do and, and they're very labour intensive. And, and so by, most of the time I'm just tired. 
uh, and I, or I don't want any distractions. And distractions can be the most, they, they're pe- things that people seem would, would regard as being quite simple things. Someone asked me recently to look at the first three chapters of a book because they wanted to submit it, and I simply couldn't. I didn't want any distraction because I was surrounded by research books of what I was doing, and even to come out of that for a moment was, was quite difficult. Um, and I suppose Parker is a version of me, um, but also the, everybody in the books is a version of me. Um, they, they, I've often compared writing a novel to, it's almost a bit like dreaming. It, you know, they say in dreams that you're, you're everybody in your dream, that you put facets of yourself into each of the people you see in your dreams. So whether you're dreaming about your mum or your dad or you or uh, Mr. Miggins who owns the pie shop down the street or whatever it may be, they become aspects of yourself. And I think something of that is, is also true of, of characters in fiction, that what writers have to do is embed in each of them uh, a little p- shard of themselves. And that's true for the good as well as the bad, uh, because otherwise they have no real truth to them. Um, and eventually, I think what you have with writers are essentially splintered personalities. That they all, if you ask a writer what kind of person they are, they'll go, well, I'm a whole bunch of people, and it will depend if I'm very much upon my mood what whatever one you're going to get at the moment. Um, so I've certainly got a public persona, which would be, I mean, I, I quite like meeting people when I'm not working on something, when I have to go out and publicize things. I do that with good grace because I recognize that um, I remember going, uh, touring my first book when it came out and, and going to events where nobody wanted to come along. And why would they? They'd never heard of me. They hadn't had a chance to read the book. Uh, I've been in bookstores where, because a signed book was a sold book, the bookstore would say, well, you know, you've got, we've got 10, but only signed about two of them because we'll be sending the others back. And you remember all those times when, you know, you were talking to near empty rooms and where nobody really cared. And so now when you go out and, and people are kind of excited that you're going to show up in their local town or their local library or their local bookstore, you're very, very grateful for it. And you have to remember that. Uh, but you couldn't be like that all the time because you wouldn't get any work done. At some point, you need to cut yourself away and cut yourself off from people. And... And I've become disturbingly good at that, of, of just saying, look, actually, I'm, for the next two or three months, I'm actually not going to talk to anybody and, um, and, and kind of immerse myself in whatever I need to do at the time. But they're not, it's not a false front that I put on when I go out. I, I genuinely do like meeting people. And I do like talking about books with people and music and all of those other things. But uh, you, couldn't, you just couldn't do that all the time because you never get any work done. And does it get easier or harder to, to write Charlie Parker or to get out of... That, that it gets, no, the, the, the headspace isn't the problem, really. The, the difficulty is that with each book you write, you think, is this the one where it all kind of falls apart? You, doubt is always part of the process. I don't really give workshops because I, I know how I write, and I'm not sure how I write is necessarily applicable to everybody. But there are some things that are applicable to all, and one is that you will always doubt the value of what you're doing. And if you don't doubt the value of what you're doing, it's not worth doing. It's the curious kind of anomaly. Yeah. Um, and so, right from the beginning, when I was working the first book, you think, God, this is just rubbish. You know, you're not, you're not really going to be a writer. Nobody's going to buy this. And you just go back to doing what you were doing and be grateful that you have a job. Um, and that never really goes away, that with each book that you write, you at some point will want to throw it away. At some point, you just think, this isn't very good. And, and this is the point at which my inspiration runs out or my energy runs out. And, and I just write a really, really tough book. And... Somehow you crawl your way through it and the book comes out. And so far, I, I'm not sure whether it's not that I haven't written a duff book. It's that nobody can agree on which book is the duff one, I suppose, <laughs> that you know, people have a variety of opinions. Mm. And also, I, I kind of try and make each one 
different from the one that went before it, and hopefully a little bit better. And um, at some point, the law of averages says that you're not going to do that. But, you know, I, I don't really look back. I, once I've finished with a book and I've checked the paperbacks, I never want to read it again. I've, no, no, he's going to sit at home for a nice, oh, nice bottle of claret and read one of my books. You know? <laughs> um, so there's no reason to go back and look at them. Yeah. And so I don't really have the kind of overview of my work that my readers do. Mm. Because in some, in some ways, my readers are much more involved with the history of what I've done than I am, because I'm always looking to the next project. You know, before I have a book coming out, Time of Torment comes out officially at the start of next month, but I'm already immersed in the book that will follow it, and I'm working on something else that's completely different. So I'm always kind of a step or two ahead of what's just come out. Mm. Whereas my readers are reading it and putting it into the context of everything that has gone before. So we have two really different ways of looking at the work. And to go back to Mark Kozilek, he's one of those people who is very reluctant to play songs from his back catalogue. And I've had this discussion with him about, you know, these songs matter to people. You know, we don't always just want the new stuff. Some of us came on board because we loved Res House Painters, we loved Roller Coaster, whatever it might be. And that's true of a whole lot of musicians. And yet, you know, musicians will feel they don't want to feel trapped by their past. They don't want to feel that their best work is behind them. They always want to feel that they're moving forward. And yet that may not be true. Um, and it's a balancing act. How do you balance, you know, the natural affection your listeners have for the stuff that they grew up with, the stuff that they embrace, songs that they may uh, feel have are, are intimately involved with their lives, you know, albums that got them through difficult periods. There is something... Um, about hearing a song that mattered to you performed live by, by the musician that brings you right back to that time. It's very kind of Proustian rush. Um, and I'm wondering, is that a kind of then obligation on the part of a musician to, to, your, to your listeners, to the people who followed you? Do you occasionally owe them that moment? Um, and also, if you're a musician who's with, you know, playing a song that you wrote 20 years ago, you're not the same person. You can reinvent that song. Dylan is very good at doing that, taking a piece of music that he's, that, that's quite old and disassembling it. No, it doesn't always work. You know, anybody who's been to more than one Dylan concert will have that moment of going, what is he playing? <laughs> is th that sounds very like Tangled Up in Blue, you know, recorded in a wardrobe somewhere. <laughs> um, but you can see what he's trying to do, which is at least to engage with, with his past. Um, and I think writers have something of, of the same relationship with, with the things that went before. You know, you always hope that you're building on, on the books that you wrote in the past. Mm. And you hope that you're getting better. But that may not necessarily be true. Mm. Um, Dennis Lehane has often said that he's a very good American crime writer, that nobody says, oh, God, I love the 13th book in the series. <laughs> they always like the first or the second or the third. They <laughs> often like the books that, that introduce them to something. That's often where their affection lies. And, and a lot of what I've been trying to do over the last 17 or 18 years is to see if there's a way of working around that and have people actually say, you know, actually, that 20th one, that was, re that was really good. You yeah. could see that he'd learned a lot from what had gone before, and he was trying to use that to improve what came after. I mean, like, Charlie Parker's been a part of your life for almost 20 years now. And, I mean, you've said before that the first book was, you know, and it is a lot more violent in tone than the ones that followed. Of course, there's violence in all of them, but the first one is particularly aggressive, I guess, and you've kind of said that you, you know, it's where you were at the time of your life. I mean, how do you, like, did you get to a point where you were like, okay, I actually do love this character, and I want to spend more time with this character than I might originally have envisioned? Like, was it a thing where you kind of gradually learned to love the guy, or... Because, I mean, no. like, here we are, 14 books in. And oh, yeah. Can't. No, I'd always had um, 
an affection for him. I just, like most writers, I didn't expect that, that I would have a career. Hmm. I genuinely didn't. It's not false modesty. Um, you know, the first book took so long to write and had been rejected so often in various incarnations that you actually don't think it's it's really going to happen for you. And, and certainly you don't envisage yourself still writing that, you know, nearly two decades down the line. At some point you assume you're going to get found out. And everybody lives in fear of being found out, and particularly anybody who's doing something creative that they're putting in front of an audience. Um, there is always that concern. Uh, and so I, I didn't expect it. And it has been one of the, the great joys, I think, is, is has, have, has been able to accommodate myself to this character, to let him grow and let him adapt and develop, um, and to write a series of books that I think are... I think are it would be very hard to find a pattern in them beyond the fact that there are certain recurring characters, that the books are not don't have the same mood or tone with each one. Although, to be fair, Time of Torment is a very, is a very violent book. Uh, maybe because the book that preceded it, which was A Song of Shadows, wasn't at all. A Song of Shadows was very melancholy and meditative and moved very, very slowly and dealt with the past. And when you write a book like that, you really, as a writer, can't do two of those in a row. Your, your natural instinct is to go, I can't, you know, I did, that was a slow one. You know, let's uh -huh. have a fast one now, you know. Um, so you want to, you, you do want to tear it up and, 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 and juggle it. And I think A Time of Torment is probably about as, 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 as dark and violent as I could go now. Really? Uh, yeah, it's very different from what went before. So where is, uh, where is Parker? Where is he at now? Where is he at? He is, um, he's, he is hunting. He's become a hunter. He has realized that he, he can he has a certain degree of information that will allow him to go and find people and give them the choice of of handing themselves over and confessing or they will be handed over to something else. And he has become a kind of agent of justice, I suppose, of a larger divine justice, I suppose. And he is approached by a man who's just come out of jail and this man believes that he has been... Um, he was imprisoned because... He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, that he intervened in a gas station robbery. And because of this, he was targeted. His life was torn apart. He was thrust into jail. He was essentially going to be tortured for years. Um, and he's convinced that, that, uh, that, that people related to the two men at the gas station robbery are involved in this and that they are in the employ of, of an entity or a person called the Dead King. Um, and that's kind of where the book begins. And he says, Parker, look, you know, he said, why would I lie? He said, I'm going to be dead in a few days anyway. All this is nearly done. And I just want somebody to hear my story. And Parker is the man who listens. I'm going to go read that now. You guys can finish the rest of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's out at, uh, in the end of this month or next, or uh, next in month? In Ireland at the end of this month and in the UK about a week or so later, yeah. yeah. Do, you pref do you have a preference over the, like, the faster ones or the slower ones? or is it No, it's, it's purely a question of really what went before it and, and what, what mood I'm in. Uh, <laughs> at the time when when you begin writing it, and sometimes often you don't know what mm. what you're going to write, and sometimes you can just try and shake it up. I had, you know, once I'd finished *Time of Torment*, I had two ideas for for a Parker book, and then I thought, well, actually, what would be really interesting to try would be to set those two ideas aside and simply sit down and begin writing without anything, and see what emerged. Um, so not to have any plan at all, not to. And I, it's when I say plan, I have usually have a loose idea of the opening of the book and one or two things happens after, but actually to start with something entirely and, and say, I'm going to write a thousand words and see where it goes. And, and so that's what I've done this time. So everything should be an experiment and everything should be a way of of at least trying to use a muscle that you haven't used before. Mm. Um, 
and it may not work. You know, if things don't work, you also have to, I think, have the courage isn't the right word, but I suppose the self-discipline to throw it away or to go back to the point at which which it went wrong. I remember interviewing Michael Connolly once, and he'd written a book called Void Moon. Void Moon has always been regarded as a problematical book in the Connolly canon. Um, and I asked him about it, and he said he got about 70 or 80,000 words into it and realized that he'd gone wrong at about 15,000. <laughs> so we, uh, And he said, well, he said I had no choice. He said I had to tear, literally throw away 60 or 70,000 words, which mm. was just, you know, good six or seven months of work. And to strip it back and go back to the beginning. And he said, you know, he went back and he was, he was happy enough with it, but it, it's the evidence of the trauma of it was still there, I think. It right. still didn't quite work. But that's a very difficult thing to do is to throw something away that, that you've started simply because you realise actually that's, that's not right. Yeah. Uh, and the awful thing is as you build in your career, your readers will forgive you a bad book. Readers, by and large, they will forgive you a bad book if they get to spend time with the character. Uh, and a lot of our affection for mystery fiction is tied up with the characters that we read about. The plots don't really change all that much. You know, they, there's a murder, there's a solution somewhere <laughs> along the way. Um, that's it, but in a nutshell. But, you know, the characters are the things we come back for. And mm. so, you know, readers, if they get to pick up a book and they get to spend time with the character, they go, oh, that, wasn't, that wasn't the best one I've ever read. But, you know, at least there were a couple of good jokes in it somewhere along mm. the way. And, you know, it passed the flight to Marbella. <laughs> but they won't stop reading you. Yeah. You know, they won't suddenly toss it and go, well, I'm never going to pick up that yeah. book again. They will for other reasons. I mean, I've had people write to me uh, announcing in no uncertain terms that they'll never read one of my books again because they object to political or... Uh, opinions expressed about society or injustice that they simply can't live with. Especially more right-wing readers would feel that there is a liberal agenda under, underpinning the books. Now, there certainly is. Uh, <laughs> let's not be clear. But, uh, but uh, my understanding of what, and they're often American readers, my un, un, interpretation of the word liberal and their interpretation of the word liberal are not the same. Hmm. Um, and actually, I would often say that underpinning the books is a Christian interpretation. Um, and that my understanding of what Christianity entails is very different from theirs. Mm. Um, but it is curious. The reasons why people will become disaffected with the series are very rarely to do with with the plots or necessarily often with, with, with the quality of the novels. Unless there is a consistent downturn that they can see over three or four or five books where, you know, essentially that you've lost the plot entirely. Mm. They're reasonably forgiving and reasonably tolerant and reasonably patient. Was it a was the Song of Shadows that led to anything like that? Because obviously you got no. Curious, it was the, word, the, the most of the some of the the most I know visceral so with the two books be, were the Burning Soul I think. No, the Wrath of Angels got a lot of it, and the Wolf in Winter for some reason hmm. because. I mean, the Wolf in Winter is is kind of. I mean, it's a it's a town of wealthy people called Prosperous who've cut themselves off from any obligations to the poorer in society, and you know, killed the daughter of a homeless man. I mean, you don't really need to be a rocket scientist to detect that maybe. But you know, that was born out of something that was you know in Maine um, through a complete. It wasn't an accident. It's because the Democrats in Maine couldn't find their couldn't find the ground if they fell over. Um, the Democrats in Maine had uh, had essentially split their own vote. And what had happened was they had um, an independent called Elliot Carver, who was a kind of, um, was Elliot Carver, Elliot something or other, um, who was who was vaguely Democrat liberal, ran as an independent, and they, they put up this woman called Libby something or other who was just very old and nobody wanted to vote for her. And down the middle uh, came the Republican candidate, really dreadful man and and you know he's he's a very right wing uh 
Tea Party esque Republican. And and in Portland, because winters get really so cold and dangerously cold, uh, the city will will find a place for homeless people to sleep. Even if they're sitting in a disused bank lobby with the fluorescence on full, they will be allowed to sleep there to keep them warm. Um, and then they have to get out in the morning. Uh, but it's just so they have people dying on the streets. And, you know, the, there were people in, in Portland and, and involved in the governorship of the state or involved in, in running the state who felt that actually this was encouraging people to be homeless and that the solution was actually not to do this anymore, that we would not give homeless people a warm place to sleep at night and leave them out in the streets. And, and the implication being that maybe if a couple of them died, it would discourage the others. And I just found this, it, this the fact that somebody could could actually attempt to have this seriously have this discourse or this conversation I found baffling and and, and offensive on every level as a human being so um, they're saying that they're suggesting that someone would like sell their house so that they could have the free well, accommodation of it, the it becomes well no it, well there was a t- there was a touch there was part of that came out as well because they some poor homeless guy who died was discovered to have had a legacy of about 60 or 70 grand in his bank account but he was also mad <laughs> you know that you know if you have sixty or seventy grand and you're a sane person, you're probably not going to be sleeping on the streets. Yeah. It's not very complicated. People don't really want to be homeless. Um, but there is a very when you have this conversation with people, there is a peculiar, particularly among right wing evangelical Christians, perhaps, who believe that God rewards people, good people, okay? So that if you are wealthy and if you're comfortable, you're wealthy and comfortable because actually you've led a pretty okay life. And therefore God has looked at you and said, well, all right, there you go. You, you're, you're gonna, your job is going to be nice and safe and your kid's going to go to good schools because you're a good person. The implication then, if you follow that process of logic through, is that the people out on the streets kind of ask for it. <laughs> you know, that maybe God doesn't smile on them for the yeah. same reason because they didn't get the finger out of their ass and they didn't work as hard as they might have done. Yeah. You know, and therefore, why should we support these people? It's that awful philosophy. Everybody has to carry their own bucket, which you will hear occasionally in, 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 in certain more extreme aspects of conser- uh, conservative conversation. Some people are just born damn unlucky. And, so, and in America, it's very easy. Um, and the more I go over there, the more uneasy I feel it is very easy to slip through the cracks you know there isn't the kind of social welfare system that we have here where actually if you lose your job or you get injured you know you're not going to be wealthy but at least here you will have money in your pocket each week you know you won't be allowed and we do have a homeless problem but we don't have anything like the homeless problem that they have in in the United States at the moment um you know, I, I've had friends who lost who lost their jobs especially when the bookstores began to close and you only have six months unemployment and after that, you know, you're you're looking for food stamps. Mm. You know, it, it's really difficult over there. And and you know, I feel that whatever the problems we have here, there I think we still recognise we have an obligation to, to those who who are less fortunate than ourselves and who suffer really through no fault of their own. And that is thematic in the Parker books. The Parker books are about your obligation to those who are suffering. You know, Parker is somebody who can't stand back. He cannot turn his back on people who suffer because to do that makes him complicit. And I find it curious that you know, nobody would want to read a private eye novel in which the private eye worked for some wealthy guy and at the end he turfed all the poor people out and they all went and had a big dinner. You know, that's <laughs> the, the private eye novel has always been on the side of the weak and the powerless. Mm. You know, the private eye novel comes out of California. It comes out of California in the 1920s. 1920s California was one of the most corrupt states in the Union. It was owned by the railroad companies because if you move, if you control the, the movement of goods and people, you control an economy. Yeah. And therefore, all of the institutions of law and order and the governorship of the state were 
directed towards ensuring that the railroad companies remained wealthy because if the railroad companies remained wealthy, everybody else remained wealthy and maybe you get some trickle-down economics. Mm. Um, but if, if that's the case, then if you get in the way of the railroad companies, the forces of law and order have no interest in you. You're just an obstacle that mm. needs to be removed. And if you can't, if you're weak, if you're poor, if you're in any way vulnerable and you can't turn to the forces of law and order, who do you turn to? You turn to the person from outside. And the private eye was the... He was a the, he was a, a version of the Western hero, and very consciously so. And that people like Dashiell Hammett had written westerns before they wrote Private Eye novels. And you mm -hmm. can, if you look at the Black Mask and the development of those stories, you can see the the writers of westerns, including Hammett, gradually morphing their characters to suit this new environment. And the moment I think when it happens in fiction is is Red Harvest in 1929. Hammett's Red Harvest is the moment where the western becomes the Private Eye novel. So underpinning, philosophically underpinning the private eye level is the idea that actually the private eye has no obligation towards the wealthy. He has no obligation towards mm -hmm. the powerful. His obligation is towards the people who suffer. His obligation is towards the people who don't have any voice. And so to criticize a writer for having a kind of vaguely uh, liberal or pro-poor pro <laughs> or pro-vulnerable agenda is actually to suggest that you shouldn't really be reading private eye novels. <laughs> These are not really the books philosophically for you. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned the name Elliot Carver there. Um, I'm pretty sure that's he was the villain in, in Tomorrow yeah, Never I'm Dies. Yeah. Elliot, what was the name? Elliot the, Carver is Jonathan Price's That's right. It's, he's James Elliot Bond villain. something or other. In, uh, and, in and Tomorrow if I had Never it Dies. To my, if I had it on my fingertips, I could always cheat and look it up on a phone now. But, uh, but that would be really that nice. actually kind of ties in though. Um, like yeah, I think that was Jonathan Price's that their their hilarious version of a of a Rupert Murdoch, I believe. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like you mentioned characters kind of forgiving you a bad book because or sorry readers forgiving you a bad book because they want to spend time with the character is that why we go see james bond films all the time because we, like, we know he's going to win but is like we don't care about that we don't care about necessarily the climax we care about spending two and a half hours or you know 400 pages with these characters that we've built up history with like is yeah that no, they're all and james bond films, and i speak as somebody who loves james bond passionately uh, you know, f almost physically, um, <laughs> that there are, you always come out of them slightly disappointed. Even the very good ones, you kind of come out of it going, yeah, that was okay. Did you see, okay. uh, see the last one? I did. I very much came out of the end. I of thought it was pretty poor. Yeah, yeah, especially the last half hour or so, I thought I thought it wasn't great. And it also, the, the last half hour appeared to, it was like they got the reels mixed up. <laughs> you know, surely you're supposed to finish with blowing up the big base and having all the explosions and the gunfire. Rather than just having Bond in the boat shooting that helicopter, that that yeah, that's kind of act kind of two stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it was it was all over the place. But you know, we got to see a proto Brofeld, You know, and and yeah, and, and you got a car chase and a couple of good lines, and and it, there was a kind of lightness to it that I quite liked. But I think you're right. I think we'll pay our money because it's a James Bond film. Mm -hmm. We'll buy it. We'll buy it because it's a Jack Reacher novel or a Case Scarpetta novel or whatever it may be. You know, we and when when writers go off and do something else, their readership falls away. You know, readers do not go out and buy my books because my name is on them. They look very carefully to see what it is I'm writing about before they start handing their money over. <laughs> yeah, I just looked up as Elliot Cutler. There you go. I was so close. You see that? <laughs> very close. <laughs> you see that? That is the that is the middle age bus again <laughs> taking its toll. Do you, are you aware of any? Uh, um, crossover between your audience and Michael Connolly's audience just because you're side by side in bookshops? Yeah, like very occasionally. Uh, quite often quite elderly people who come up and say, I completely accidentally started reading your books because I sent my husband out to buy the latest Michael Connolly and he's an <laughs> idiot and he bought, he bought yours instead because his eyesight isn't great. That genuinely happens. Yeah. 
Uh, so I feel I should be sending him royalty payments occasionally. He probably got some the other way as well. Yeah, he doesn't need it as much. You know, he's <laughs> he's he's pretty comfortable. My mother is a huge Martin Connolly fan, and um, I remember when Bad Men came out, which is kind of a long time ago now. I, I gave her an early copy of it, and I gave her also because we shared a publisher. I gave her an early copy of the Michael Connolly book that was out at the time, which I think was A Darkness More Than Night. I kind of a week or so went by and I met my mum for a cup of coffee or something like that. I said, so she did you like the new book? She said, oh, yes, that was, that was very good, very good. She said, that Mike Conley book was brilliant, though. That was fantastic. <laughs> and I realised Mike Conley is the son my mother never had. <laughs> and and so when he did come to visit Dublin, she was very anxious to meet him. And my publisher was very kindly. And my mother is very typically Dublin working as a woman who didn't want to say who she was so got in line with everybody else and uh, the people from Hotter Founder and said come in and say hello to him and so and he spelled he spelled his name with two O's just for her and you know now it's just like essentially we have a shrine to Michael Connolly in her house you know she burns incense in front of a picture of him you know uh, and asks how he is you know so it's just shocking so I have an uneasy relationship with Michael Connolly alright well we won't talk about him anymore so no, no damn it. Um, I just I'm interested in in the voice of of Charlie Parker because there are other things you do you do other types of books as well that aren't on, in that series. So say you do the book of Lost Things or something, and then you're going back to do another Charlie Parker. Do you find it's easier to get into the voice of of the character, or does that get harder because the character gets older? No, and I, I even that I I've tried to find a way around. About halfway through the Wolf in Winter, the books moved from first person to third person, just. And now the last three books, most three books, yeah, have been written in in the third person, almost as a way of of detaching myself from that, from that maybe that reliance on on simply being able to fall into his voice. Mm. Um, like I just said earlier, it is everything is an experiment. Everything is to see what what can work and to, and to try something new and different. Um, and also because I think I will go back as the novels reach what maybe a climax or some kind of conclusion, I will probably then go back to Parker's voice, um, that these decisions are quite deliberate. So no, I don't, I find it reasonably easy to slip into his voice. Maybe mm. I just like to say maybe too easy at one point, so I decided not to do it. Um, usually when, what happens is about halfway or two thirds of the way through the book you're working on, at least in my case, I, I will have some inkling of what I want to do next. Yeah. Um, and so, by the time I actually get to the process of, of rewriting, which I really like more so than writing, I enjoy editing and rewriting, I'm already thinking about the book to come. And so when you sit down to begin writing it, you've almost, your brain has almost begun readjusting the machinery so that the voices usually come pretty, pretty, pretty easily, uh, that change in tone. And, um, and then, you know, I, I realized that, you know, it's a two-year process for most of the books and, and I have time to get it right. You know, nothing that comes out that in that first draft is ever very good. Mm. Um, you know, I'm finishing a draft of something at the moment, and it, you, know, you couldn't show it to people. People would think that they'd wasted their money or <laughs> years. You know, wonder who was writing the books for you. Uh, there's somebody once said there are no great writers, just great rewriters. Mm. Uh, and so the trick is to go back over it, and and it's almost a process of repetition. I, I writers have different ways of rewriting. I know someone like George Pelicanos will write a thousand words in the morning and rewrite a thousand words in the afternoon and never look at them again. Right. You know, that's it. That's his rewriting process done. So he looks back at what he's done and then moves forward step by step. I've always written start to finish. 
and then going right back to the start of the book again. And, mm. and I love going back over it over and over again and so until you become really familiar with it and mm. you spot the places where the voice isn't good. It's a process of repetition. Mm. And I guess actors are probably the same thing. You know, you, you keep giving the speech over and over and over again until it almost becomes second nature to you and you become very familiar with it. And I think that's, that's, that's the way I work, is, yeah. is that process of repetition. The voice is, you know, it, the, 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 it's there faintly at the beginning. When you begin writing, it's there, but not quite developed, and it develops over the process of, of writing and rewriting the book. Um, I, I saw you on your website. I was reading your you've got columns that kept going into <laughs> uh, you, you weren't able to finish them, and then it went to a new column. And you come. Um, but you were talking about there's some American writers that kind of s put down a few ideas and a, a vague plot, and then send it into the editors and things. Um, but you'd you'd be the opposite of that. Then you'd you wouldn't even show an editor until now, there are some writers fashion. who like who enjoy a very collaborative process with editors, mm -hmm. and the editors work hand in hand with them. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they will they'll write a very loose first draft, and then ask their editors, "Look, am I am I on the do you think I'm on the right track here?" And the editor may say, "Well, this this doesn't quite work, and that that does work, and that might needs a bit more development." And then they go back and do it again, and so it's a very there it's very hands on editorial process. Mm -hmm. um, and I came came out of newspapers. Mm. And in a newspaper, the last thing you wanted was to have something handed back by an editor. You know, the the whole idea was that you were given a space that was 500 words long. Yeah. And what what came in was on time, spelt right, and was 500 words. Because if it was longer than that, the subs would just cut off the bottom anyway. Um, <laughs> or if you didn't get it right to have the, this, you know, the news editor come over and say, look, this needs work or that's not right, you'd failed. Yeah. Um, and so I brought something of that with me where what I wanted to hand over to the editor was, was as good as I could make it. Mm. Um, and then their input is always right. And the things I've ignored from my editors, I was wrong to ignore. Right. But I still have to ignore some of it just because I'm, you know, I'm an individual and a big boy. Um, <laughs> but, they're, but they're nearly always right. Um, right. But I don't want that. I, I, I really am... Um, even my Jenny, my better half, doesn't get to read anything until it's actually at the process where it's being copied, copy edited and laid out and right. proofed. Uh, I don't want that kind of input. I, I know what I'm trying to write. Right. And I, I think I'm also, I also know when it's wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, there would be little, my, my editor does a line edit now where she'll spot one or two little things, but she, she even, she doesn't want to be hands-on to that degree. I remember going to a um, crime convention in Harrogate a few years back and an English writer stood up and said well what I do is he was publishing a lot of ebooks he, he had a contract with Hodder but also did his own ebooks at a time when we all thought the world was going to be ebooks and no one would ever pick up a book again it was a brief period of dreadful fear <laughs> which thankfully it didn't come to pass and he said somebody pointed out you know your your ebooks are littered with errors I mean, they're horrific uh -huh. and really un almost unreadable and he goes well you know A he had the Ryanair attitude which is well I'm only charging you 99p <laughs> you know, what did you expect a red carpet you know it's 99p what do they expect for 99 pounds and he said well in that first instance my, my readers are my editors so he said I'm not going to pay an editor Said so my readers are made. So they spot mistakes and they write, send them in to me in an email, and then I alter the file because it's a really easy thing to do. And I alter the file and then that goes out, and then the next bunch will spot something else in that second draft, and I'll change that again. And and they don't really seem to mind. And those I was sitting there, I was thinking, but you know, what about simple craftsman's pride in what you do? Mm. That you know, you wouldn't give somebody a wonky chest of drawers or something, you know, or a bookshelf that had a slope on it. You <laughs> you try as a matter of pride in what you do 
to put something before the public that you, you would be proud of. That isn't error, little. It isn't error strewn. That, and, I, and I feel that way about what I put before my editor or my agent, that it should be. And then, then you know, somebody that comes back to you and they've done their line and it's covered in red marks because you've misspelled there and there. <laughs> you know, I know the difference between T-H-E-R-E and T-H-E-I-R, but when you're writing a book, you look at it so often that you begin glancing over individual yeah. words because that's not what you're looking for. You're often looking for... It's very hard to look for problems with plot and problems with punctuation at the same time. Yeah, They're two very different ways of looking at a book. And you're too close to it as well. You are, and you, and you simply see, your eyes simply, you, you're, it's, it's why when you read, if you notice that when you're reading, none of us are reading every individual letter in, no. in the words that we read. We scan over it, because yeah. otherwise you, you'd, you'd spend the rest of your life trying to read a book. You yeah. know, <laughs> uh, And writers, unfortunately, even the, with the best will in the world, you do the same thing when you're, and it's why I, at some point I will always print off the book and edit it by hand. Yeah. You can't edit on screen. I mean, whatever your things of scanning something that's that's on a printed page, when you're looking at something on screen, your eyes just flick over. Yeah. That's, we become very attuned to reading that way, I think. Yeah. But what about the books, uh, which are like three-page chapters, like 200 chapters in the book, a la James Patterson, which are... Well, that's a very different mode of writing. You know, his, his view is that he wants you to get from start to finish as soon as possible and... Um, you know, that's not the way I write. Mm-hmm. Um, and every chapter has to be a cliffhanger. Um, no, it's uh, it's not the way I write. I, you know, I, Patterson's books, I, I've, I've met him once. I interviewed him. He was a frustrating interview subject, I remember, because <laughs> he he was a salesman and a marketeer. And, uh. and he was marketing his books. And he didn't want to have a conversation about, particularly about creativity or about how the books were put together. He simply wanted to know how you could help him sell more copies of the books that he had written. And yet he's turned out, as it happens, to be quite a saviour for independent books. So I think the Gunnar Bookstore in Dublin, I think, got one of the grants from him. Really? You know, he, he's given a lot of money. Because the great dream of Amazon, and, and what remains the great dream of Amazon, is that they will, and the time perhaps has passed for them, but, but about five, maybe five years ago, um, when the whole ebook thing really exploded and when suddenly you have everybody was, was going to be reading on the screen, what Amazon wanted was for a Patterson or a Lee Child or a Patricia Cornwell or a Stephen King, somebody who was a huge popular fiction author, to go, jigs up. <laughs> Game over. You know, <laughs> bookstores, you know, I can make more money off Amazon than I can off bookstores. Bookstores are closing. Uh, who wants to read this way anyway? I'm going over to Amazon. And, and, and what would have happened was you would have had a kind of, it would be like pulling out a, the first thread and suddenly the, the, there would have been an unraveling. And I think a lot of, well, if, if Patterson, King, Scarf, whatever, Cornwell is doing it, I want to be smart and do the same thing as well. In fact, what happened is none of those writers did that. And all of them, because they had grown up, I think, in a culture of bookstores and libraries and the printed word, they very much wanted to see <laughs> bookstores and libraries persist because I think they recognize, or there are a whole lot of complex reasons for that, but one of the reasons is that we would be culturally poorer without bookstores and libraries. In the mm. same way we're culturally poorer without public art. You may not like the fact that your taxes go towards it, but it adds something to the fabric of our lives. And also for kids, you know, kids learn by what they see around them. You know, if you the kids who grow up in a in a in a, in a house filled with books are more likely to become readers than kids that don't. We you know we often grow up with the things that we see, and and Patterson in particular, he took out adverts in the New York Times. He announced a fund to support independent booksellers to support children's books. You know, he put some of the money that he'd earned from you know selling squillions of copies into ensuring the continuation of bookstores and into ensuring the continuation of the printed word and. There was something really admirable about that because mm. he could have just sat back in one of his 
10 properties or whatever it was going. <laughs> I made me money. You can all sink or swim with that. And he did something good. So, yeah. you know, fair juice to him. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of opposite in, in music in a way that the biggest musicians in uh, musicians <laughs> in the way that James Patterson's one of the biggest writers, you know, maybe maybe the quality's not all there, but they are all very much on kind of streaming services and not, as far as I can see, supporting the kind of independent record sellers. Yeah, it's it, it's a difficult one. I think we thought that early on there was an attempt to, to draw an analogy between the music industry and, and the books mm. industry, but they weren't ever really the same. No. Um, you know, books were always kept going by a very small number of people who read an awful lot of books. Their affection for books was often tied up with the artifact of the book. You know, they and this they weren't just sentimental about it. They liked people who who like reading, like being surrounded by books. Mm. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, and so they wanted their shelves full of books. They yeah. they held on to copies of books that they liked. Um, they also realized that that they read differently. If you, it, you know, what's happened, I think, is that a balance has been achieved. Just because you could sell Ulysses for a cent didn't mean that everybody was going to start reading Ulysses. Yeah. The same people were always going to read Ulysses. It didn't make any difference. But if you go on holidays, yeah, I, I don't have an e-reader, but I can understand that maybe as you get older, as your eyesight doesn't get, you can increase the print on it. If you're going getting on a cheap flight you're go, and you're somebody who reads a lot, yeah, you can bring 20 or 30 books for your two weeks away on holidays. When you come home, what we found is that people don't want to read on their Kindles. You know, they spend most of their day looking at a screen anyway, whether it's a TV screen or, or a computer screen. And actually, when they when they read, they want to read something different. And um, you know, I was doing a lot of touring the states for the last year or so. You see fewer people reading on screen. Mm. You just do. You see more people reading books. The, and what's happened is that hardback books, um, which are the books that people keep and put on their shelves, they've largely been unaffected mm. by the whole e-reading thing. Um, Photography books haven't been affected. Cookery books haven't been affected. Children's books haven't been affected. Illustrated books haven't been affected. A very small section, a small but lucrative section, of the market was, which was not popular fiction, mm. uh, genre fiction. Uh, because they were often the books people bought in paperback anyway. And then when they read them, you know, you're not, probably not going to keep most of your mystery novels unless you're collecting a writer. They went into the charity box. Mm. Uh, and so paperbacks, mass market paperbacks, have taken a hit and haven't recovered. Mm -hmm. And probably never will recover. That, that's the ideal market for the e-reader. Uh, but actually, literary fiction and most non-fiction largely unaffected by it. Uh, and so that kind of equilibrium has been established now. Um, and the, the you know bookstores for the first time in, in the United States they, they they gained more bookstores than they lost. Mm. But they're independent bookstores. The future of big box stores, of Barnes & Noble, yeah. that remains up in the air. It's, mm. it's probably very hard to see them continuing really as booksellers. They, they will become a more general purpose store, I think, and they mm. will sell a bit of everything and books will be part of that. That's stuff. already happening. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, Waterstones went from a period when every Waterstones store was exactly the same to now each one has autonomy. You know, it's central buying, but you can decide what you put in your window and what's going to sell locally. So you're seeing a move towards localized stores. So where a bookstore is almost like a craft store where you go into it knowing that they will have a certain amount of knowledge of what they're selling. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, aimed to, it's aimed at you. It's very much part of your locality. And, and that's the appeal of them. The interesting thing about Amazon now is that Amazon has opened its first bricks and mortar bookstore. Mm -hmm. Now, that's going to get them into an awful lot of <coughs> trouble. Because if you go back to uh, the early days of cinema, 
when what happened was the people who were making the movies so also owned the means of distribution, which was they also owned the cinema chains. And the American government forced them to divest themselves of the cinema chains because you couldn't own that because it created monopolies. Yeah. Um, and so Amazon, it's, it's very likely that the attorney general will have to move against Amazon now, which is good news because they had a free reign for a while. Mm. And say to them, look, you, you can't open bookstores. <laughs> yeah, that's what, what you, cause, and because Amazon ideally wants to be the one-stop shop for everything. Yeah. That, you know, it controls, it, but you can control the, the object and the means of distribution and sale. That's very much part of the ethos over there. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's in curious times. Yeah, it is much better to go into a bookshop and know that the person working there has at least read some of the books and, yeah. and, and can give you an opinion. And also, and people who buy books are odd because they don't buy <laughs> books because of an algorithm and they don't buy books mm. based on the book they bought last. What yeah. they will often mean is they buy the fact they like the cover. Yeah. You know, the mood that they were in when they went to the bookstore suited the book with the green and gold cover. Yeah. That was the book they picked from the shelf. They'd never heard of the author. They had a flick through it. They read the the jacket copy. They thought, that sounds interesting. I'll go and buy that. That's the way they do. They're not, it, it's very hard to create a, a kind of computer program that predicts their taste because even they don't know their taste. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in that regard, like when you're touring, which obviously is part of what you do, um, and you go over to the States or you go to you know some kind of far-flung country, I mean, do John Connolly fans tend to kind of differentiate as, as, as people? Like, I mean, like, are, are you meaning all kinds of people? Like, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not, and, and a reason, you know, generally pretty even split between men and women. Um, younger people, some of whom have come in through books like The Book of Lost Things or The Gates, um, and have kind of signed on for the ride, so they've kind of gone, progressed to the other books. No, there isn't any. Like, just like it would be hard to, to create, you know, the the ideal reader, you know, this <laughs> image of somebody, you know, yeah. the, you know, tweed jacket, glasses, pipe, but that's just the women, you know, it's, it's, you just, you, you can't do it. There's, there's no logic to the kind of people who come along. And that's what's lovely about it. We very awful to go into a bookstore and it, everybody was between, you know, 45 and 63 and, you know, came from a certain income group and, uh, and, and, you know, had the same taste, all read just mystery novels. You know, that's what's lovely is that you get it such a mixed bag. Uh, and that's part of the pleasure of it. Mm-hmm. How do you find life on the road? Harder than it used to be. Um, simply the, the thing of, you know, and, and you're complaining. If there are people working down mines who will have no sympathy for you. Uh, sometimes you get on, it's, you know, they don't, they're trying to give you cava instead of champagne. And you know it's cava. Um, <laughs> they're lying. Uh, I, I think it's more that I... Um, there are odd little things. I, 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 you're, you're up at. If you're in the US, for example, you're up at five every morning, and you're getting on a plane, and you're getting off the plane. And for me, I don't like having somebody in a car with me. I regard that as precious time. So you pick up the rental car and you do a tour of the, you're dropping into bookstores, and maybe you might be, if you're lucky, you'll check into your hotel in time to have a shower before you go out to, to do your bookstore event, and then. You're often because it's you may be the only person visiting that little store that week, or you know there are people that you've met before, and they want to spend time with you afterwards. So you go out and you have a glass of wine or something. You might eat for the, properly for the first time at about nine or ten that night, uh, and knowing that you're up at five o'clock in the morning, and you do the same thing for five or six, seven, sometimes ten, twelve days. You could, when I was 30, I could do that. <laughs> when I was 30, I could be the good time had by all every evening. Uh, at 47, <laughs> I'm not able to do it. Uh, so that takes it. And also, I, when I've done it, you know, a tw- there are, even in England, there are 12 hour days. Mm. At the end of it now, people often come, do you want to go out for a drink? And actually, I just want to go and read. 
<laughs> I just need a little bit of time when I'm not talking, just just to be by myself. Um, because I just find it harder. But also, you know, I, I was away a lot and, uh, you know, my kids are growing up and they won't be at home forever. And you realize, do I really want to spend it in a hotel room in Hull when I could be sitting, you know, with my kids or going to a movie with them or something? So you miss a lot. I've missed funerals of you know, people who, are, who mattered a lot to me. Because at one point I was, in, I was in Australia when somebody close to me died. And there was just no way that by the time I actually got home, they would have been in the ground. And you, so you want to spend slightly less time away from home than you did. Mm. Um, but like I said, when I said speaking at the beginning, there is something lovely about going into a bookstore or library and, and a group of people come along simply because they like what you do. And they like it enough that it, even though it's pissing rain outside, they've put their coats on and they've come along to hear you talk and get their books on. And that's really lovely. Uh, so it's a, it's a balancing act. So my balancing act now is that, yes, I'll do all of those things, but afterwards I probably just need to not go out drinking, <laughs> you know, because I'm, I'm not able for it anymore. Do you, do you ever hear, does anyone ever tell you of how they get into your books? Um, when David Bowie died there, um, it was like, some people were saying they hadn't listened to a lot of his stuff because it's you know such a big back catalogue. How do you how do you get into it? Like, where do you start? Um, and obviously there's now 40, 14 uh, Charlie Parker books. Um, it's It's kind of intimidating. Yeah, and that's one of the difficulties, I think, when people go into a bookstore. You can actually reach a an odd point as a writer where you have so many books in the series that people go I don't you know that's too much hassle to start <laughs> do I have to go right back to the beginning to catch up and maybe I'll just read somebody else instead you know because you don't want to come in at the end of a joke that everybody has been talking about for 14 years mm. uh, so that's that's a bit of a problem um, and there's not much I can do about it um, apart from make each book accessible and say look you actually don't have to go back to the beginning you can pick up The Wolf in Winter and enjoy it you don't you know, if you read them in order, you get a slightly different sense of what's been happening all over these years. But you can, you should be able to pick up any book in the series. Often the weirdest things, you know, uh, there's uh, two guys, big beefy blokes from Air. I thought they were going to mug me when I came into the <laughs> store. And it turned out they drank in this local pub in Air that uh, just had a shelf of books. And as people finish books, they put them on the shelf. And if you were sitting in the pub and you finished reading your newspaper, you could take a book off the shelf and read it and you know if you by any chance happen to have a book that you wanted to substitute later you could do that mm. and this hard working men's pub in air had essentially a little book group <laughs> you know people which so you know, that's how it's simple things people picking up your books because it happened to be the book on the shelf in the hotel when it was raining mm. uh, and but often for readers it's word of mouth it's somebody saying you should read this person and even if they don't do it immediately the seed of it takes hold and so one day they're in a bookstore and go it's that bloke then Madge likes, you know, I'll <laughs> give that a try. With the kids' books, slightly different. Um, mm. Kids are very much word of mouth. Right. And they don't read adverts and they don't read reviews and they largely read things that their peers are reading. Um, and so uh, sometimes it's odd things. Like, um, and the experience of dealing with kids is very different. When, when they fall for something, they fall for it completely unreservedly, much more so than adults. Even the most enthusiastic of adult readers can compare with a child who's discovered something because mm. they just embrace it and it becomes everything to them. <laughs> uh, and so when, when you meet kids like that, that's, that's quite lovely. Mm -hmm. um, and the Book of Lost Things is curious in that way because I, I didn't really write it for, for kids. It's, it's an adult book. It's, mm. it's, it's a book suffused with regret and loss, and, and by and large, those are 
those are things that adults deal with. Regret, I've had this argument with a, with a children's writer once who she said kids feel regret too, and they do, but not, not to the same degree as adults. And regret, I think, is cumulative, builds up over the years. Um, and, um, and so I'd written this book, and I thought, well, it's, and I, I didn't even think of it, it's not a fantasy novel, I don't think, or at least not a fantasy novel in the sense of, you know, elves and things, but it is, it, it deals with the fantastical universe. I just thought of it as a piece of fiction. But very much written with a sense of adult regret because it's about it's somebody looking back, you know, somebody older looking back. And what I hadn't realized, I suppose, was that there would be teenagers who, because it deals with a with a teenage boy who loses his mother, mm -hmm. there would be teenagers, of course, who were dealing with loss and who liked reading mm -hmm. and might pick up this book. Mm -hmm. And their relationship with it would be much more visceral than an adult would be. I mean, when you lose a parent, it doesn't matter when you lose a parent, it's always awful. Uh, but there is a kind of natural order to it. And so the, the sense of loss you will feel um, in your 40s or 50s when a father or mother dies, it's very different from the sense of loss a 14 or 15-year-old mm. will feel when they lose a father or mother. That's a very different type of pain. And I remember doing an event at a school in Arizona, and it was just awful. I was there because essentially it gave the teachers an opportunity to go and have a cigarette, I think. For, and so I did three hours and they had no bookseller, so I was never going to sell a book. And I, I just, at the end of it, I thought, and a lot of the kids just, I was just better than math, essentially. And at the end of it, I was just getting ready. I was fantasizing about just how many drinks I could probably fit into what was left of the day. <laughs> and this girl came up, she was a little tiny, gorgeous thing, probably about 15 or 16. And she had a copy of the book of lost things with her. And I looked at it. It was the only copy of my book I'd seen all day, <laughs> this thing. And and I said, geez, I said, and it was battered. <laughs> so often when that book is brought along, it's battered, yeah. which is lovely. I think you know, people bringing pristine books in the hope that my plane will go down. You know, <laughs> sign <laughs> it, don't write it quickly. It'll be worth money to see a book that's just been, that thing spilt on it. And, and she, said, uh, she said, I brought my copy of this book in. And... Um, my dad said I could, should bring it in. She said, I'm a bit embarrassed because, you know, I've never really brought a book into anybody before. And I said, geez, you know, I said, it's, it's, I said, it's fine. It's lovely to see it, you know, and I'm very fond of this mm -hmm. book and thank you for bringing it along. And, and I said, what do you want me to write in this? She said, if you just, she gave your name and I'm assigning it. And she said, you know, she said, my mum died last year. And you kind of pause inevitably when somebody says that. Yeah. And she said, she said, you know, I... I, she said she was a very kind of articulate kid. She said I, I was I it was I fell into myself a little bit. It was just I didn't want to talk to anybody, and I just wanted to be left alone. And and she said I read the book and she said I didn't think that anybody knew how I felt. And and she said that's why I've read it so much. And and apart from wanting to hug her, which wouldn't be a very good thing to do in American school at the best of times. <laughs> um, but but I, what I, what what you want to do as a writer is to have that moment of point that point of connection that. Mm. That's why you write. You write to take what you know or what you think you know about life and to make it intelligible to another person in such a way that they go, yes, I, I think that's true or I know that to be true. And, and of all of the books I've written, that's the book that probably has had the most of those little moments of contact between the reader and the writer. And, and that's why you write. You don't write. You to go back to the question about do you mind going out on tour? No, I, I don't. You know, I get tired and I whinge about it occasionally and, you know, uh, but to have those moments of contact between readers and writers is something lovely. It's something you really don't have the same point of contact if you're an accountant, mm -hmm. you know. It's you know, or a lawyer. Your <laughs> your your dealings are going to be much more business oriented and a lot less pleasant. Mine are always pleasant. 
Mm. Even when people disagree with me, they usually disagree pleasantly. Yeah. <laughs> but to meet somebody who has genuinely been moved by something that you wrote or has been affected by it or actually was made to feel a little bit better, you kind of think, well, actually, that's not a bad day's work. You know, I'll, I can kind of rest easy. And, and that one moment made the three hours that went before it, which were hard, yeah. that was okay. You know? Is that is that why you... I read, and I think also on your website, you, you call it the mo your most beloved of books. Well, it's certainly th it's the book of mine that that I think readers probably have the most affection for. Right. Um, that little book, and 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 was written at a, t a time when, um, you know, I think my career was moving in a very different direction. You know, my career was really oriented towards more Parker books. It was what bookstores had been led to expect, and and when that book came out, it didn't do awfully well. And and some of the reviews were really vicious because they came from fantasy writers who felt, I think, that, that here was some guy intruding on their territory. Right. Um, and it was the first time since every done thing that I'd taken a kicking. Um, and I'd almost forgotten what it was like. And it's, it's not very nice. Um, and it's then curious that this should be the book that sells pretty much the same amount of copies every year. Yeah. It doesn't really vary. It sells exactly the same amount. Um, and it's 10 years old this year. My publishers are... Uh, bringing out an illustrated edition of it because oh, we nice. had um, no Alibis bookstore in Northern Ireland had done a limited edition of it, just a hundred copies uh, with a uh, woman named Anne Anderson who was a woodcut art, woodblock artist, uh, woodcut artist, and she'd done all these gorgeous illustrations that were only ever in a hundred books. And any time I used to, then I got them made into postcards that I would give to people. Somebody came up and said I really like the book. I go, well, here, here's a little set of illustrations which people used as bookmarks and things. And we thought that's a shame that these gorgeous illustrations were never seen again by anybody mm. so it's quite lovely that the publisher's gone yeah we'll, we'll we'll do it we'll keep it the same price as that book you know we won't it's not gonna have silver pages or anything <laughs> on it and the great thing about woodblock or woodcuts is that they reproduce very well on that kind of simple mm. paper and so yeah it'll it has its own life which is quite lovely which has nothing to do with me Ooh. you know it's readers who have given it that life just by talking about it and yeah because it the thing about a book is that you the writer's control over it ceases the moment you hand it over to the publishers you have nothing more to do with it after that. And the book that you write, and you're, all your intentions for it go, matter not, because people bring all of their own life experiences to a book, and everything that's happened to them. And they no two people read a book the same way. Hmm. You know, because we, we have all lived, you know, there are certain things we have in common. We will fall in love and out of love. We will, with lucky, we'll have children. We will experience the loss of parents. All of us will go through those things. Uh, but we will all experience on a very individual level because nobody has lived their lives before. And so your intentions for a book, what do you think, oh, this is how people are going to read it? Suddenly you find that people read in completely different ways. Hmm. And and so you can't really predict how a book is going to do. And a lot of the power of a book comes from the cumulative effect of a lot of readers recommending it to each other and saying, I loved it for these reasons and connecting with enough of them who kind of feel the same way or similarly. Hmm. Um, and so a, a kind of momentum occurs that really is, is not, is kind of ancillary to the book itself. Mm. Um, you know, the Harry Potter, look at Harry Potter. You know, it's, those books were okay. <laughs> they were okay. And they were, you know, they were not a great advance on the children's literature that had gone before them. But mm. something in them created this kind of cloud of enthusiasm and that was wonderful hmm. but you know J.K. Rowling didn't sit down and think you know I'm going to be you know me and the queen <laughs> you're know, going to be fighting that out on the, the, the rich list you know that's not it's not what happens yeah you mentioned kind of reviews there I mean like you've been on both sides of the critical coin 
and like we keep reading things about it was the thing about like oh is the album review dead that was a you know everyone likes to say is this dead is that dead whatever um i mean like i guess as someone who's kind of seen both sides of it and you've written your own reviews too of course um is this a conversation that you like that's still out there i mean that that we still have reviewers that we still have criticism that we still have it i kind of feel like people are not so much trying to make it go away but like i've always felt that it was a very valid medium and granted, there's good reviews and there's bad reviews, like there's good books and bad books and good films and bad films. But I mean, I don't understand why somebody would want to do away with the notion of being able to appraise someone else's work. No, and I think part of that was also the ease of criticism on the internet, which, you know, there's a difference. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody is entitled to an opinion. You don't have to listen to it. I don't have to listen to your opinion. You're absolutely entitled to it, but I have other things that I'm really busy doing. Criticism was something different. Criticism wasn't just based upon whether you liked something or didn't like it. Criticism assumed a certain body of knowledge behind it, I think. Um, and, and a certain, you, it was a craft that you practiced and that you were serious about. And um, and that has fallen away by, especially literary criticism has fallen away by the wayside. It's fallen by the wayside a little bit. The, the number of pages in newspapers devoted to it has fallen um, there is a perception, I think, that you know people are more interested in just looking on Twitter or social media. And I see my own publishers, you know, their their fascination with social media, particularly in America, to the detriment of printed word. And you, you kind of want to say to them, "Hang on a second. Most of the people who are reading are probably reading the printed word. Same people who are reading books, the kind of books that I write, are probably also reading newspapers. You know, they're probably also picking up magazines. They're also probably interested in music." Um, I know it's A.O. Scott, the movie reviewer for the. New York Times has written a book about criticism and about the value of criticism. And, and, and I think it's, these things are always moving in cycles. You know, we all, there was a huge drift towards e-books and then that drifted away back to the, towards the center again where people were reading some e-books and reading some printed words. I think with criticism, because you suddenly could go on Amazon and give things five stars or one star and, and opinion that became the, the the mode of expressing opinion because it really hadn't been there before. Um, I think what you'll see is people drifting more towards back towards the kind of criticism you find in in quality newspapers, the kind of criticism you find in good magazines, because it does come with that imprimatur. You know, I look at somebody like Mark Kermode in in in, in Britain, you know, who has a radio show that's incredibly populist and popular. Uh, and also writes for the Observer, and I think part of the the attraction for of Kermode is that you know he is he's an enthusiast, but he's an enthusiast who has been working in this sphere for three or four decades now, mm. and, and and you know you, you can kind of, it's not so much that you agree with everything he says, but you can see where the opinions come from, and yeah. then you can use them to, to create a best. You know, if you say I you know I don't like Connolly's latest book, and you go, well, what have you read before that? You know, where does this come from? Why, why would I share your opinion on this? I mean, if you don't like any of the things that I like, then you're, why should I care that you don't like this either? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but the problem is that by the time we make that shift back, you know, newspapers aren't going to start putting more books pages in because newspapers are getting smaller. That the the means of expression, the modes of expression, the the the, the places we can turn to for those opinions are not going to be there. Um, it was why it was so worrying when bookstores started to close because once they closed, most of them were not going to open again. They were going to become mobile phone stores. <laughs> there are some things that once you lose them are very, very hard to bring back again. Um, and you, you can argue that that, that whole thing, for instance, it, it, there's a problem in academia at the moment um, You know, because that, the, the mindset required to be a good critic. 
um, can often, it's often cultivated in those arenas, cultivated in a, a third level. Third level is a very good, a good place to, to explore those ideas. Um, but, you know, I, I have friends who are lecturers and are and are finding that kids want to come in now and you present them with Middlemarch and they look at you like you're an idiot. They go, that's a big problem. I'm going to read that. Like, that's going to take like weeks out of my life to read. You know, so you get people reading Cole's notes. You're getting people reading snippets of it or looking at the length of the thing before they decide to read it. We have become attuned increasingly to very fast. The, the internet has encouraged us to think quite shallowly about a lot of things. We're very good at skimming. The internet is great for skimming. It's great for flicking from one thing to another. It's not very good for, for depth, for reading in depth, for encouraging us to immerse ourselves in a piece of art, in an article or in a piece of art or a piece of criticism. Uh, it's designed for quick opinions. And you know, Twitter is kind of the apotheosis of that, where you know it's 140 characters or it's nothing. Mm. Um, you know, it's a, we live in a changing world. Um, and it's, it's very unfortunate when you see these avenues closing. Uh, you just hope that enough. No, but I think this is very interesting, you know, to have a, a forum in this form that allows the discussion of art, mm. you know, that allows the discussion of music and literature in a very informal way. You know, these are, it's not that, it's unfortunate that, that maybe newspapers aren't giving that space anymore, but there are other places you can go and look for that kind of opinion. You know, you've, what would people do? Transcribe the conversation? We just had curtains and all, you know, to the New Yorker. You know, it's not, it's not really going to work. Uh, but whereas there's somebody sitting in a car who wants to, you know, and what I love about I, I, I'm a great proselytizer for radio. What I love about it is that, um, is the intimacy of it. There is something about hearing people speak. And when you are listening to this on your iPod or listening to it in your car through your little output thing or whatever it may be or on the bus, you're part of a conversation. Even though we can't hear you, you're kind of, and you're not a silent participant because somewhere in there you're making noises of disagreeing about Marcos like or whatever it may be or my political <laughs> opinions. You are part of this conversation. It's just that we, we can't hear you. But I can sense what you're going to say. I know the places where people are going to disagree. And I think that's what's lovely about this. So, yeah, some, some forums have closed down. Some avenues of exploration of criticism have closed. But other new ones have opened up. And I think they'll always be there because there will always be enough people who want to have a serious discussion about the thing that they love. Mm. Speaking of, and I can't let you leave without asking this question, uh, given that you present the excellent ABC to XCC on uh, 2XM. Thank you. Um, if Charlie Parker, it's a question I kind of ask sometimes to people in, in different music interviews, but if Charlie Parker was forced, presumably at gunpoint by a nefarious villain, to listen to one song only for 24 hours, <laughs> oh what would he choose? Because he's got quite an interesting, he's got, he's got, he's got eclectic taste. eclectic taste in music. Uh, my friend, one of my closest friends, I, I once had Parker refer to my Desert Island album, which would, I think, probably be a walk across the rooftops by the Blue Nile. And my friend Mark said it was the point at which I threw the book across the room because he said he'd never, Parker would never listen to a walk across the rooftops by the Blue Nile. Because Mark hated that album with a passion. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really lovely question. Um, you know, I, I've been doing, um, I've been working on a limited edition for the last year, uh, which is about to come to fruition, I hope, uh, called uh, a miscellany, Parker Miscellany. And and what I did was I realised that I had put together, because we'd done six CDs, we're about to do the sixth of the CDs, that I wrote, but there was a kind of store of about 70 or 80 pieces of music that that I included with the books over a period of time, but I'd never been able to write at length about them. And I ended up with this 300-page book of essays on on music and using the songs as a as a kind of starting point 
uh, for what came after. And so I've had to go back over literally everything that, that has been included on those CDs and think about them. Um, and I think going back, it, it would probably be something on that first CD, the one that came with the Black Angel. This, that's the one I think that that works as a whole. So it would probably be, it would probably be something by the Red House Painters or Lamb Chop or something quite very mellow and downbeat. I think that would have that probably would appeal to him. I suppose, but it's been very interesting too. I, I love music and I I don't really get the chance to write about it very often. I get the chance to talk about it but not write about it. And so it was an opportunity to put my thoughts down and annoy people and they wouldn't be they wouldn't be able to disagree with me because I've written it in print. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure Mr. Kozlek will appreciate your answer. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um I don't want to keep you too long, but um maybe I just one more thing that I wanted to ask you about is I I've a very um uh, I'm always interested in in religion and what people kind of feel about things. I've got very strong feelings on it. Um but and there's a few things in um the book of lost things that read to me like very kind of secular ideas mm. and they may or may not be what what you wrote. Um but then as a person who writes about supernatural things a lot, just wondering what your kind of point of view on it is or uh, or, or, or where you stand. Yeah, I, I'm always very careful about it a, apart from when it when it's to do with with um what I would see as poverty and injustice particularly, then my opinions I find very hard to, to kind of keep tamped down. Mm-hmm. Um I think the Parker books accept that lovely Jerick Jerick William Gaddis once said in, in the next world we have justice and in this world we have the law, the possibility that there would be a a, a larger type of justice, that there is something beyond ourselves. I mean the Parker books are kind of predicated on that. That's mm-hmm. the whole the whole basis of them, I think, is that I've never had, you know, I, I grew up Catholic. Um, I still get, although I don't go to Mass, I still get a kind of pleasure occasion from sitting at the back of the church, but I think I quite like the peace of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that word spirituality has been hijacked by people who think all angels look like Tinkerbell, so I'm very distrustful of people who do that. <laughs> uh but I have a very, like Parker, I have a very old, I have a Byzantine pilgrim's cross, which I've worn for a very, very long time, and he wears the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I get a kind of consolation from that, but could I put it, the consolation I get from it into exact words? <laughs> Probably not. Right. Um, so I tend to be very careful about that. Um, yeah. And I think the books, by and large, including the Book of Lost Things, are kind of just pleas for tolerance. Mm. You know, the Book of Lost Things in particular mm. is very much, I, I, when I'm revising it, um, I'm going to change one word okay. in the Book of Lost Things. <coughs> and only because a, a girl came to me with her father uh, when I was doing a, a talk about the Song of Shadows in Michigan. And she had, uh, she'd come out a couple of, couple of years before. And she said, she, she, she loved, she said, I love the Book of Lost Things. She said, there's just one, there was one moment where I thought that you'd, you'd backed away from what you were doing because there, there is a, there are two knights, and there was a knight. He, David meets a knight in the book who is uh, who's come looking for his 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 friend or his his companion. I suppose is the best word for it. Um, and it was playing with those ideas. I think of there there was a kind of there was a kind of celibate love. If you read um, kind of courtly manuscripts, and if you read many of manuscripts between men, but there's clearly also the implication that there might have been something more to 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 it between them. And and she said at one point at the end of it, the last moment you referred to him as, as he, he he joined his friend or wept for his friend. She said that should have been companion. 
you know, that friend was was a mealy-mouthed mm. word to use. Mm. And I hadn't, I hadn't intentionally mm. done that. Mm. You know, I wasn't thinking that I, about backing off. But but for her, it was very important that that the the ambiguity, perhaps, or the possibility of, of, a, of a different interpretation of that re- relationship remained until the end. Mm. And so she's absolutely right that, mm. that it should be companion. Um, I'm not sure why that came up exactly, other than to say that, yes, you, you know... Um, they are very much about allowing different interpretations for the reader mm. and insofar as possible not having me foist my views of the universe on them too much yeah, yeah. and I think that's what makes it interesting that, yeah. that you have to give people the space to bring their own viewpoints to the work and then that allows the work to change because books are not fixed objects mm. books are fluid mm. and that fluidity comes from the space between the reader and the writer where they can explore the ideas and come away taking what they choose from it uh, without somebody standing up and going, listen, this is the interpretation. I wrote it. This is my interpretation and everything else is wrong. So don't you come along here with your namby-pamby ideas. Um, so I'm very careful. But yeah, so far as I can answer the question, that's, that's yeah. it, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I'd, I'd agree about that. that I, I didn't really think about it at the time, but that changing that word is... Is a nice idea. Yeah, especially if somebody is coming to it with that kind of life experience. Mm. That 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 the word suddenly a very simple word mm. becomes loaded and freighted with meaning, and yeah. and you have to be very careful about that. Yeah, uh, because I don't think I could read that book again. <laughs> I'd only see the things that I wanted to change. You know, suddenly if you it's that thing. Go back to the uh, the analogy of the thread. Yeah. Once you begin pulling threads from this, <laughs> very dodgy business. <laughs> Well, great, because I have loads of notes for you. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I think maybe we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah, it was good. Well, thanks a million for coming. It was a pleasure. Thank you for giving me so much time and for, for listening. Thanks, to thanks for you Thank for giving you. us so much time. It's a pleasure. Cheers. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So that was John Connolly. That's easily one of the worst episodes we've ever done. <laughs> easily. What a disaster. That's, that's Dave Hanratty there. Hello. With his opinions. I'm pretty sure you haven't introduced me in either the intro or the episode, just so you know. This always happens. I I'm, did. I introduced you in both. I'm the music editor for Headstone. Oh, right. You, want, you sure. want a title. I introduced that's, Dave Hanratty. Yeah, but no one Everybody knows, knows you. You've been on the podcast plenty of times. I'm on Twitter. Get me on Twitter. I'll yeah, he's on at, at Dave or whatever. At yeah. Hanratty Dave. <laughs> or give out about things. <laughs> So that was John Connolly, um, great guy. As we said, uh, go and read his books. Um, go to the launch of, of the new one if you're in Dublin, A Time of Torment. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Um, uh, Dave will be there. Talk to Dave. Give out to Dave if you feel like Alan it. Alan won't be there. Uh, I may be there. <laughs> I've been to many book launches in the Gutter Bookshop. The Gutter Bookshop's a great place. Well, no, you have to be there because if you don't go there now, it's going to look like you're snubbing our guest. Yeah, that's true. So I probably might be there. <laughs> so uh, if you enjoyed this podcast please share it uh, tell your friends about it uh, rate it subscribe to it on iTunes uh, or Stitcher get it tattooed on your flesh get it tattooed wear t-shirts that we haven't got but you can make yourself make a sandwich board and walk around Dublin city centre yeah just do do what you can it, one of those aeroplanes that can do s- the skywriting with the smoke yeah um, get, get a drone yeah anything just do any of that please. stuff please because it really helps and we want more people to listen to Dave's opinions how's it going <laughs> um so, and also uh, read headstuff.org. Wait, that wasn't an opinion. That was a greeting. Yeah. I've gotten confused. Yeah, it's okay. It's just the it's pressure okay. that you've had. You're so good at both of them. Um, nice. So, read nice headstuff.org. Read nice the music toy. section with Dave. Dave's the editor of the music section. For now. And, <laughs> <laughs> and should be still when this episode goes out. Who knows? it's going out soon. And read the literature section where you may read about John Connolly. And oh yeah, actually, we should mention. Uh, I, 
there's two interviews with John Connolly on the site from about a year ago. One yes. in the music section, one in the literature section. We will put them into the intro of this. Yeah, we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes. Yeah. But also, seek it out. Go to that website, hit that search button, type yeah. in John Connolly, and read what he has to say. That's it. Oh, and yeah. listen to his radio show. He's on uh, RT2XM, a show called ABC to XTC, which is very good. Yeah, I was reading about that today. It's, it seems really interesting. You should listen. be listening to it. It's a radio show. I'm, I'm on it. You don't read about a radio show. Well, I'm on it. Uh, <laughs> I did read about a radio show. Okay. <laughs> now go listen to the radio show. Yeah. He, he While reading the John Connolly book and getting the Head Stuff logo tattooed on your flesh. <laughs> what a day someone's going to have if they actually follow all these things. John Connolly mounts a one man campaign to convince the doubters that there is much to be cherished in the music of 1977 to 1989, from the Ramones to a flock of seagulls and from Talk Talk to the Stranglers, not to mention the titular, titular or titular? Titular. ABC and XTC. He plays a personal selection of his favourite tracks from those. Years. I, I, I missed the line there. All right. Follows the careers of artists such as Kate Bush, The Cure and Depeche Mode, who were products of that era and continues to pro- produce new music and picks up on modern artists such as Fever Ray and Ladytron who were the influence of that earlier period on their sleeves. The only rule, there are no guilty pleasures. This is all just good music. I'd like to think that that was just you on, uh, on the top of your head there, but no, you're reading it out. <laughs> yeah, I, I just got it very quickly there while you were talking about something. It is good music. It's a good show. Uh, okay, that should be the end of this podcast. Uh, thanks to Mikey for the artwork and to Video Blue for the theme tune. Thanks very much to Dave Henratty for co-hosting duties. Thanks, no thanks to Connor Wilkins for not being here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, we, we miss Connor. I don't. Uh, thanks I'm to over, Connor. Who, <laughs> thanks to Connor who'll probably help me when I try to edit this episode. And thanks to John Connolly for uh, being very generous and giving us this time. Thank you, John. Thanks. Bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.